Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. Rarely a day goes by without a Pakistan-based startup announcing their latest funding round. Pakistan's ecosystem has become one of the fastest growing in the world. In the eight months to August, startups in the country raised more than $200 million, an astounding amount when compared to the $66 million raised in total in 2020. The country's economy has all the right indicators of a market with potential. It has a population of 200 million people, double that of Egypt. More than half of this population is online and the government has made significant strides to build up both its technology infrastructure and its startup ecosystem. There is growing interest among the Middle East investor community in Pakistan, with several already making investments in Pakistani startups. To get a better understanding of just how quickly things are moving, I spoke with Saif Ali, General Manager at Dastagir, and Ahmed Saeed, founder of Grocer App, about the growth of entrepreneurship in Pakistan and whether more people in the Middle East should be taking greater notice. Hi Saif, welcome to the WAMDA podcast. Hi Triska, thank you for having me. Let's start off with the Dastagir story. Tell us a bit about what exactly it is and when was it launched? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So Dastagir is a B2B um, e-commerce marketplace that is aiming to connect over 2 million underserved mom and pop retailers in Pakistan directly to suppliers. So it is a marketplace. It is an Alibaba for SME uh, retailers, right, where we have over 2000 SKUs uh, and we offer them next day delivery. Uh, we take care of last mile. We have sorting centers uh, where we receive stock from our suppliers uh, and then deliver it to our customers. Currently, we're operational in Karachi and Lahore. Uh, we've been around for about a year. And in this time, we've served over 40,000 retailers. We've fulfilled, you know, we are currently fulfilling millions of dollars of orders every month. Um, we have raised about $4 million in venture funding so far um, in an angel and seed round combined. Uh, the seed was led by SOSV, and um, and yeah, that's us. I lead marketing and PR and comms for the company. When did you join Dastagir? Just uh, in May 2021, so not that long ago, but it feels like I've been here for years. <laughs> if you can tell us a bit about how things have changed even since then, since May. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is hyper growth, right? Um, we are seeing on average 30, 40% growth month on month. Um, the team has scaled up significantly since I've joined. Um, by our good graces, the marketing efforts and PR efforts have also been really, really successful. And we've seen substantial growth in brand awareness on the corporate side, on the talent side, which has been a huge challenge for us. Naturally, to build the kind of company and the kind of team that we want, we need to attract the top talent here. Um, and we're fighting against a lot. Like we're fighting against the, the typical mindset of going into multinational companies and following cookie cutter career paths. Uh, we're fighting against brain drain, right? So uh, employer branding was a major part of that and we're doing much better now than we were before. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy ride. Uh, during this time that I've been here, we also announced our seed round and saw amazing traction from that as well. Um, we are now about to launch our buy now, pay later feature. 
So we're going to be partnering with fintechs to offer um, invoice financing or essentially offer the solution to our retailers for them to buy uh, their basket of goods and be able to pay it off in a 14 day period or 30 day period, which is really going to change the game. So you mentioned the seed round. It attracted a few Middle East based investors, right? That's right. So from the Middle East, we had Al Zayani Venture Capital out of Bahrain um, and we had TriCap Investments out of Dubai as well. Uh, along with a whole host of angel investors on our ticket from MENA. This is a trend that we're starting to see in the region. Investors are taking notice and greater interest in, in the Pakistan ecosystem. Why do you think that is? I think it's because it's an inflection point that can't be ignored by anyone uh, in this in this tech world, in this venture capital or private equity world. Um, you know, and we're making a lot of noise, to be honest. Uh, we were all just part of a co- conference yesterday uh, discussing these items, especially. And there was a lot of talk about how we've seen certain VCs participate in Pakistan in two or three rounds that haven't even participated in any other rounds across the Middle East, right? And that's happening due to the world-class founders we've got now, the world-class teams they've built, the world-class products that are in play. Um, I can tell you that just in 2021 alone, thus far, we're sitting in September, we've raised over $250 million in venture capital, right? Um, and like that's that's way way beyond our track record. By the way, 2020 in all of 2020 we saw 66 million dollars. Um, actually, to put it in another perspective, in the last four weeks, startups announced more venture capital raised um, than the entire country has ever seen in the last four years combined. That's incredible. I mean, you mentioned world class founders and talent. How does it get to that point? Naturally, you have a couple of. Uh, academies of entrepreneurship, if you will, that come by and, and you know, give this training, give this development to the local talent base. So Karim was a major part of that, right? Karim was also one of those first tech companies to really bridge this MENA and Pakistan gap that we now like to refer to as MENAP, right? Um, because Karim, one of Karim's co-founders was Pakistani. He was very bullish on having tech headquartered here. Uh, the first versions of the app were built here. And even as they grew and had engineers from all over the world, their engineering base camp was still located in Karachi, right? And so naturally, it was a huge market for Karim. There was a massive team here, and they really inculcated that culture of ownership, of it's always day one, of solving problems day in, day out, um, and trained these you know, soon-to-be founders, the next generation, the next wave of entrepreneurs, so one of our co-founders, Muhammad Awais, uh, was also an early teammate at Karim in around 2015, 2016, right? So number one is the fact that they got that training from world-class leaders like Mudassar Sheikha and Magnus Olsen. And number two is that the Karim exit created our version of the PayPal mafia, right? It, it you know, created all these millionaires overnight, and if not even millionaires, you know, young kids that exited with hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and that capital allowed them to have a sort of, um, you know, the seed capital they would need to go out and explore new ideas and set up new shops. We did a, a mapping of all the startups that had emerged out of Karim, all the employees that had worked at Karim that went on to launch their own startups. And um, it was incredible. And I don't think I've worked on something that becomes so outdated so quickly. 
uh, we're still seeing former Kareem employees launch things. So last year, there were 34 startups that were launched uh, within the mafia. Before that, it was 19. I haven't counted this year, I'm afraid, but it is substantial. And I guess this, this uh, going forward in the future with perhaps Destigir creating its own mafia, this is how ecosystems develop and mature. Precisely. And that's exactly the aim, right? So if you talk to our co-founders, they're very bullish on this concept and so much so that uh, they, they will ask us this question uh, as employees, they'll ask us, as managers, they'll ask us this question at least once a week, that whatever task you're on right now, whatever projects you've been doing, are we preparing you to become a founder in two to four years? Is this what you need to learn to set up your own company in the next two to four years, right? Are we equipping you with those skills? Because they're very passionate about, you know, and they really understand having come from Karim, having come from Airlift as well, which is one of the country's fastest growing startups. Um, they realize the importance of this, that if we breed those next uh, new founders, Ultimately, we're growing the ecosystem. Ultimately, we're creating new partners for ourselves um, that will, you know, extend the value chains and, and complete them eventually. Let's talk a bit more generally about the Pakistani ecosystem. There, there are a lot of comparisons with Egypt. Do you think that's a fair comparison? I do think there are a lot of economic similarities, but culturally, they're very different markets. Um, and, and of course, we are still a little bit behind Egypt in terms of ecosystem maturity, right? So we still haven't really had a proper exit here. So recently, you might have heard about a logis logistics company that was sort of acquired by another logistics uh, shop out of Dubai. Um, and another ed tech company was recently acquired by another ed tech in Lebanon uh, or Jordan, I believe it was. But we haven't seen the kind of exit that Swivel has, right? Um, where you have an IPO or you have a proper M&A that is returning multiple folds of uh, investments to the initial VCs or angels. Um, and so that hasn't happened. We haven't seen the kind of valuations that have already been sprouting up in Egypt. We don't have a Faudi, right, uh, as of yet. Uh, we are very well uh, on our way. But, um, but and there's definitely something to be said about the hyper growth. So there's a lot of comparisons with other emerging markets like Indonesia and India. Um, and there is something to be said about, you know, when they were going through this phase, their curve was not as hockey stick as ours is. So, so yeah, there are similarities definitely um, between Egypt as well. But, but I think uh, what's important to note is uh, we've got a few edges, I believe. So from what I've heard from you know people we've been speaking to is that um, we have better engineers in Pakistan than Egypt does, right? So that definitely gives us an edge in terms of building those world-class products. Um, and ultimately, product-led growth is really what will drive that investment, that ecosystem growth. Is this engineering talent cheaper than Egypt or more expensive? I, I believe it's about the same, right? So um, that's part of the reason these emerging markets are also more attractive for investors is that you're getting this talent uh, at a discount, right? As compared to international standards. Um, but again, um, I think Egypt and Pakistan are both sort of suffering from the same ailment of brain drain, right? As I mentioned earlier. So our top engineers will again get poached by startups or, or major tech conglomerates out of Dubai, out of Singapore, out of Hong Kong, out of the US. Um, and that's something we're still struggling against because though we may be able to offer them above market compensation or be able to build a world-class culture, 
people just don't want to live here, right? And we're trying to sort of inculcate that mindset that, look, this isn't just about, uh, you know, the commercials. Um, most of these companies, what we're doing is we're driving real social impact. We're driving real behavioral change. We're bringing in so much FDI. Right. So I just mentioned to you that we've raised $250 million in venture capital. Our entire FDI for, for this year will probably be around $1.1, $1.2 billion. That's about 25% from just VC alone. Right. Um, and, and so naturally, we're doing a service to the nation. Uh, and so we're trying to play that up a little bit as well. Talking about the VC investment, um, are there concerns from investors from abroad when they look at the market or is it, you know, they just see the potential and, and they're happy to put the money in? I think that what you're saying would have been true a few years ago, um, but a major reason for why we're seeing this inflection point this year is because our regulator has made massive strides in the last few years. So now that regulatory environment, that policy environment is much more conducive than it ever was before. And this is especially important for fintech, right? For the lending companies, for the NBFCs, right? Uh, previously, like the red tape that they would have had to go through was unimaginable, right? And naturally then the VCs didn't see it as a viable opportunity, but but now you've got, I mean, countless, countless fintechs, you know, in across almost every vertical, whether it's EMI or whether it's lending or micro lending or nano lending, um, all sprouting up, all venture backed, um, and that's happening because, um, you know, the, the regulatory environment has improved. So one trend that we saw in the Middle East about 10 years ago was that initial startup activity took place in the e-commerce space. And that's, that's actually something that uh, the region was typically criticized for, that it was very consumer-driven, um, consumption-driven startups and not enough innovation, um, however you want to define that. Obviously, we've, we've developed, so we have more the kind of logistics, health tech, ed tech, AI, deep tech starting to emerge as well. Where are most of the activities when it comes to startups and the sectors? Yeah, no, you're, that's a really good point. And, and I think this is indicative of um, any sort of nascent ecosystem, right? Uh, it's the same in Pakistan. Uh, you can very much say that our ecosystem is also strongly biased towards e-commerce and fintech, right? So that 250 million number I keep citing, about 70% of it has gone to e-commerce and fintech, right? But that e-com is again B2B and B2C. Within the B2B space, we've got, what, five venture-backed players now, right? Um, uh, and I think almost every single one of them is being supported by Middle Eastern investors as well. Uh, but. But yeah, that is definitely the case. Uh, all, these two are followed then by logistics. So there are quite a few, um, you know, third party logistics aggregators or trucking marketplaces um, that are in play uh, and have received funding. But yeah, ed tech, health tech, these are fairly just right now dismal in terms of the attraction that they're getting from investors um, or local talent or, or press coverage, what have you, you know, and and I think that has a lot to do with the kind of exposure we've had so far as an ecosystem, right? So Daraz is our biggest e-commerce, you know, B2C e-commerce giant um, previously owned by Rocket and then sold to Alibaba Group, right? A lot of the founders are coming from Daraz. Right. Um, a lot of the founders are coming from Karim. A lot of them are coming from Airlift. So ultimately, they can only pull off what they know. Right. Um, I think eventually when we see the major ed tech players like Noon have an exit 
and their teams in Pakistan cash out on their ESOPs, then perhaps we'll be able to see more innovations on that front, more innovations on health tech. There are a lot of products and a lot of companies working on this, but unfortunately they haven't received the same sort of traction. Sticking with e-commerce, one of the big issues regionally that we have faced over the years, although it has improved um, a fair bit since COVID, is cash on delivery. Uh, What's the situation like in Pakistan? It's exactly the same. So um, I can tell you earlier this year, we had our first um, inaugural e-commerce awards and, uh, and there was a lot of data collection that happened during that effort. And what we saw from about 80,000 respondents was that 79% of consumers cited COD, cash on delivery, as their main preference. And there's a lot of reasons tied to that. Um, So number one is that our banking penetration overall as a population is about 15, 18%. So that's really dismal, right? Um, Credit cards is one to 2%, um, right? So the the room for digital payments is, is very small as it is, but even for those who have access to digital uh, payment tools, there's a lot of seller mistrust that you know is still in place, um, and that is because what you what you have with these uh, hyper growth startups is that they're scaling and growing at at breakneck speeds, um, but that quality control wasn't there as well as it should have been, um, which led to bad you know CX, which leads to again seller mistrust and so this sort of vicious cycle. But as I mentioned, there are a lot of fintech players in the market right now that are really trying to incentivize um, people to make this happen. The uh, the regulatory environment is really incentivizing both the companies and the consumers to make this happen. So we will definitely see this improve. We will definitely see a change, I believe, within next, uh, you know, within this one year. Um, I would expect at least 20 to 30 percent growth in just digital payments. I mean, you're very optimistic. Um, What are the challenges, though? The challenges remain, again, so uh, brain drain is a huge challenge. Um, to this day, the regulatory environment is not where it should be. There is still a lot of, a lot of room to improve. So, for example, uh, one major issue is that uh, nearly every Pakistani startup will still have to set up a hold co abroad somewhere um, and receive their venture funding in that country's bank account um, and then slowly pull in that money uh, you know, under the remittance uh, umbrella to, to operate their businesses, right? It's really complicated to get that capital directly injected into, into the local registered company uh, here in Pakistan and then be able to eventually repatriate those funds when there is an exit, when, the, when that investor needs to cash out on his or her equity, right? One example is a partner that we've been collaborating with for a while was the first one to pull off um, a convertible note direct investment into a Pakistani entity. But it took him 12 months, 12 months of red tape of back and forth with the State Bank of Pakistan, right? This document and that document and then this NOC and then that one. And so that kind of thing is naturally a a bottleneck for for that founder, for his team uh, and then for the investor. Right. That definitely doesn't add to that investor confidence that we're trying to build. This is something that many startups in the Middle East also face. Most do have holding companies abroad. What, do you, in your opinion, is the way to tackle this problem? What can make investors feel secure in their investment if they were to go directly to, to the registered company in Pakistan? 
I think the right way to treat this, and again, I'm not a policy expert at all. Um, you know, as a layman, what I can say is that um, I believe that this needs to be classified as a separate form of FDI altogether. So the Ministry of Commerce, the State Bank of Pakistan, all of these regulatory arms need to understand the huge, huge potential this has for our economy, right? That is FDI because we bring that money here, we set up new shops, we create new jobs, we create new social impact, we create behavioral change, right? And yeah, the investor that put in that money will eventually want to repatriate those funds. However, by that point, we've seen, you know, 500x growth, right? We've already used that capital to create those jobs, to have that influx in the economy, have that increase in the GDP. So it's absolutely fair for that to happen. And this happens in almost nearly every developed market worldwide, right? So it's not as if this is a new problem that we have to sit and brainstorm for, right? I mean, speak to other policy experts around the world to take that playbook and copy and paste it here, having localized it, of course, but create that framework and promote it, right? I don't see why, the, I mean, the MOC is not directly stepping in and saying, hey, Airlift, we're seeing that you're now at this massive stage and you've received the $300 million valuation. Why don't we connect you to Amazon for an M&A deal, right? Why don't we connect you, Dastagir, to Walmart from an, for an M&A deal, right? Because as a public sector arm, uh, we're going to be able to carry more influence and be able to approach the public sector arm, our counterparts in the U.S., and potentially sort of, you know, make that arbitrage happen. Um, but I think we're a few years away from that level of collaboration. With startups in Pakistan, who is their first port of call when it comes to raising investments? Is there enough of a local ecosystem of investors or do they have their sights set on Middle East um, investors or Chinese? Tell me, tell me about the investment landscape. Yeah, I think the majority of the investment is coming from um, uh, VCs. If we're talking about institutional investors, it is mostly coming from uh, outside of Pakistan. Uh, within Pakistan, we've only got about 20 to 30 funds um, that are reasonable enough to mention, right? Uh, sizable enough to mention. Um, I think it's about an equal split between investors in the US and the Middle East. So if we talk about the Middle East, right, you have Sharuk Partners, you have Middle East Venture Partners, Jabber Internet Fund, Al-Zayani and Tricap, as I mentioned. Um, these are all uh, VCs that are currently active uh, in Pakistan, have active portfolio investments. Um, but from the US, like Buckley Ventures and, and Harry Stebbings uh, company that I always forget the name of, um, these are people that have invested in Airlift uh, and one of our competitors as well. So there is definitely um, a lot of interest coming from international and global investors. More more so um, than local investors. However, I don't think that that's um, anything to do with other than the fact that local funds are still fairly small, right? Um, and again, there's another, it, the, the same sort of financial problem that I mentioned is a thing that local VCs also face. They also have to have hold codes abroad, uh, which again makes it harder for them to fundraise. So it's a, it's a bit of a cyclical problem. And the MENA investors, I, I guess they also come with the, the knowledge and the expertise of 
already living through the trends that Pakistan is, is going through at the moment. I think that's definitely the case. And we've seen that with Astagir as well. And these guys have seen that with Airlift as well. Um, there are a lot of operator angels coming in from the MENA space. Uh, and again, the sort of advisory, the sort of consultancy they provide is invaluable. Um, we definitely have that as well. So uh, again, talking about MENA figures, um, we also have an investment um, strategic firm uh, by the name of Equitai based out of London, but led by prominent figures from the Middle East as well um, that work with us on investment readiness and roadshows, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so we definitely have a lot of those players uh, like that involved in the ecosystem at large, um, because again, they also see the sort of cultural, uh, or cultural or economic similarities and are able to pass on learnings from Egypt, from Jordan, from KSA uh, into Pakistan. One sector that's seeing a lot of activity is in the trucking digital freight market. There was an acquisition recently, uh, Trucker, I think it was Trucker in the UAE that acquired Truckshare in Pakistan. Tell us if you can shed some light onto, onto this sector. Yeah, absolutely. So the logistics growth that we're seeing is a direct byproduct of the e-commerce growth that you're seeing naturally, right? Um, because these e-commerce companies are all tech enabled, are all tech first, digital first. And naturally they want to work with logistics providers that operate with that same ethos, operate with that same level of digital transformation, you know, uh, uh, digital um, in enablement involved, right? Your logistics providers sort of like, um, should I say legacy logistics providers have not yet really caught up, right? With that sort of demand. And that's why you have these new startups sprouting up, seeing immense growth, immense traction, um, and being able to attract that foreign investment. Recently, we had another trucking marketplace um, raise the largest pre-seed round of the entire trucking industry in the world, right? And, and again, that sort of interest is occurring because of the massive um, overall like freight movement that's happening. So that acquisition you mentioned, from what I gather, it is a sort of acqui-hire, um, where Trucker wants, wanted to have a direct and easy entry into the Pakistan market. And again, makes sense for Trucker, right, to, to be able to capitalize on that opportunity, pick up a team that already has a lot of domain experience operating as a legacy provider that is now pivoted into a new product and a new uh, company with that sort of digital en enablement there. Do you think we're going to see more of these acqui-hires as MENA-based startups look to enter the Pakistani market? Because it's not just investors that are interested, it's also the startups. Definitely going to happen because, again, um, you cannot deny the quality of the teams of the products that are already in place, right? So you look at their traction, you look at their GMV, um, and ultimately it, the case will make itself. Right. So we've seen a couple of Egyptian companies like Swivel and Trella expand into Pakistan. But I definitely think that the next Egyptian companies or, or you know, from anywhere in the Middle East to do that uh, would want to take this route, given that their vertical already exists here, um, because if it does, odds are that they're doing really well in their own domain. The MENA region is generally all lumped together. And within that, there's a lot of cultural differences, even linguistic differences. Adding Pakistan onto the MENAP geography. I, I guess there are cultural s similarities between the region and Pakistan, but obviously different languages are spoken. So how big a barrier is that, do you think? Great question. And I, I think that those cultural nuances um, are always going to be a bit of a challenge. But ultimately, you know, when I look at Dastagir, right, and I look at our product, um, 
I, I believe in the scalability of the product. So if I was to take this into Egypt, um, all I'd have to do is to hire local teams that can navigate the local regulatory environment, the local customer environment, um, right? The local supply chain relationships. Um, but I know for a fact that the product will work, right? The UVP will still will still fly. Um, and and I think we've seen that with with companies that have done this. So, again, Swivel um, founded by, you know, uh, Egyptians. Right, uh, expanded into Pakistan uh, with with no problems at all, and I think it's one of their biggest markets now. Um, and one of Mustafa Kandil's statements has sort of gone viral <laughs> in our ecosystem when he said that um, the the highest represented language across Swivel in all of their markets is Urdu, right? Because they've seen the value of that Pakistani talent, and they're placed all over their various markets and their various offices. So, so yeah, I don't I don't think it's too much of a challenge. Um, I think we can definitely meet that. So what advice or tips would you have for MENA-based investors and startups looking to enter the Pakistani market? I think definitely approach local founders, definitely approach the local incubators and accelerators, of which there are many, um, and sort of get a read on the ecosystem. Um, but definitely, I think that there's a lot of room for, you know, beyond just investment, um, but also collaborations, right? So we also work with advisors um, that have some form of like sweat equity and things like that, um, because we really need, we really value that input from other people coming in from international markets um, and telling us what they've learned, what they've seen. Because overall, worldwide, most of the macro trends in emerging markets will be similar in one way or another, right? Um, there will be tiny little cultural nuances and differences um, that sort of change the game, but ultimately it's the same play, right? And for example, you look at B2B e-commerce, um, there are various players in Egypt, there are various players in Saudi, there are various players in Indonesia and in Philippines and Africa. This model is sprouting up in nearly every emerging market in the world because fragmentation of trade is a phenomenon that exists in every emerging market in the world. So that's just, you know, to sort of make my point of how that similarity is always going to be there. Um, and, and definitely, I think that there are a lot of local funds as well um, that would be able to give invaluable advice, invaluable guidance to anyone in the MENA ecosystem looking to get involved. Saif, thank you very much for your time. It's been very interesting to learn more about Pakistan and the potential of its ecosystem. Thank you, Triska. Lovely talking to you. Hello, Ahmed, and welcome to the Wamda podcast. Let's start off with the Grocer app story. When did you launch it and why did you decide to launch any grocery startup? Okay, so I launched Grocer app in 2016. Uh, and uh, the idea behind Grocer app was that me and my partner was working for Parkwiz, which was another very uh, fast growth startup uh, and one of the leading uh, used car classified platform in Pakistan. So me and Bilal both... Uh, you know, working for a fast growth startup, you're working late shifts, working on weekends as well. So we figured out that if you belong to a, a middle class Pakistani family, then you keep on getting these calls from someone, some female in the household that, you know, bring yogurt on the way back or, you know, bring vegetables before going to going to the office. So we were earlier trying to find a service for our own selves, but uh, not able to find a good reliable service. We thought of building one and we both left Parkwheels and uh, started off Grocer App. Back then... What was the internet penetration like? How many people were ordering groceries online? So, Grocer App is one of the most, the most earliest 
e-commerce player in Pakistan, like uh, especially in the grocery space. Uh, at that point of time, the internet penetration was, you know, the the 3G and the 4G uh, penetration in Pakistan is a bit late as compared to the region. Uh, especially we compare to India or the other uh, mature markets in in this region, we are almost four to five years late. So we started off in 2016. I have to see the exact numbers of internet penetration at that point of time. But you know, Pakistani market is growing at a very fast pace. So if we backtrack to five years, uh, the number would be around most probably 80 million internet users. So, but we have to check check the exact numbers. So. And at that point of time, modern trade or the offline shopping is is the biggest case. Even if you speak of today, the ninety nine percent of people still transact offline. Like either they go to modern trade store or the uh, general trade store, and we still believe that the Pakistan is just you know we are starting off in terms of the e commerce journey, or we're just starting off where consumer are you know shifting their habits of buying groceries offline to online. It's just one percent who transact online or on the e-commerce, and if we compare to the to the the, the ratios to the similar markets like in India, the ratios are now almost touching seven to eight percent. People buy their you know the e-commerce has penetrated seven to eight percent. Turkey is somewhere a similar market at the same numbers. China, which is you know the up north neighbor, is is the highest in the world. So we see that the potential the reason for such a huge potential is that less than 1% transact online and as the numbers will shift you know to the higher side as happened in india the the market will be there to grab so i i just had, did a quick search of the internet penetration in 2016 and it was less than 18% in pakistan um and today it is at 35% so that's quite a substantial rise so when when you did initially launch how comfortable were people with ordering their groceries online what were the reservations and how have you managed to break down those barriers so i think uh, buying groceries offline uh, is a, is a years long habit uh, it's it's not only like you know in food delivery uh, if you see the the, the rise of delivery hero or talabat in dubai or food panda in pakistan uh, ordering food online is or you know through phone mcdonald's kfc has already broken up broken up that uh, that barrier consumer used to uh, call up the service and get their foods delivered so once they get a mobile application which is easier you do not have to tell address every time you do not have to confirm you know a lot of other different things it was an easier way so it's it's a much easier shift in grocery there was consumer has never shopped online it's it's a very years long habit of offline so it's not only that we are uh, convincing user to shop online but we are actually breaking the habit so breaking this habit is a bit tougher task than compared to just you know shifting from ordering on phone to shifting from to ordering on on a, through a mobile application so it's a complete hab- habit shift so in in any case the change is tough to happen but you know for that certain instance we have to make sure that we offer the best prices uh, you know the larger assortment range or all the barriers the quality of fresh produce i think in, in in grocery shopping the quality matters a lot so because the consumer are very concerned that you know where are my onions or potatoes are coming from uh, how fresh the bread will going to be is it you know how long the expiry date will be so there are a lot of metrics around freshness of the groceries or you know the quality matters a lot especially in the grocery delivery so to in start to break off those barriers you have to offer free returns free refunds 
uh, and you have to promote these sort of items in, in your marketing messages to to make it as easier as possible for consumer to to shop online so that you know uh, they have less barriers in their mind that okay i'm getting all the assortment range i'm getting the prices as good as uh, the store i visit and on top of that they are offering a free return a free refund policy so let's try and see what happens so uh you know from that perspective that's a very big uh, habit change for your consumer you have to make sure that you are uh, breaking down as much barriers or making it as easier for consumer as possible can you give us some statistics how much have you grown since you launched so so grocery app has been growing really fast for the last few years and like last year we've grown 7x as compared to the last year in 2020 from 2019 we had grown almost 10x 2019 itself was a very big year for grocery app uh, so earlier first two years of grocery app from 2017 to 19 we struggled with the marketplace model uh, the marketplace model was like very similar to what instacart is doing in us that you place an order we assign you a shopper he visits the store and bring groceries to you but we struggled one core reason was quality of fresh Uh, produce was not in our control we were not able to offer the best prices and especially uh, the inventory management was extremely poor at the store and uh, we couldn't we, we build up a lot of technology for our store partners but their physical and virtual inventory mismatch was a bigger reason the reason for like why the inventory led models are so successful in the world so we pivoted towards an inventory led model in 2019 and suddenly as the inventory level starts fixing up we offering you know better fill rates better deliveries on time so grocery app has grown to 10x in 2020 from 19 and uh, from like i'm telling from march 2019 till march 2020 when covid hit us and covid was a big you know uh, catalyst for this this for the e-grocery space uh, then then 2020 was as expected a big year for grocery app we we scaled to three more markets from lahore to islamabad pindi and faisalabad uh and uh, 2021 itself is a is a big year we are scaling up to karachi which is the fifth which is the largest city in pakistan the fifth market for grocery app currently we are at almost 16 to 17 million dollar of annualized gmv uh and uh, almost delivering more than 100000 orders per month the the bigger use case of grocery app is we are targeting the monthly stock up or the weekly top up use case uh, we are not into impulse buying use case so the average basket size of grocery app is almost around uh, $16 which is almost 3x the size of the second uh, e-grocery player in Pakistan so the average basket size of grocery app is really big so so they're doing their weekly shop that's essentially what they're doing with grocery app so consumer are essentially shopping their monthly stock up or the weekly top up use case so that's why the grocery app basket cake is basket size is on a higher end So perhaps for the listeners who who don't understand all all the technical terms for your business model this is similar to say Kipsons in Dubai um Ocado in the UK where you have your own warehouses and you have all the products that you stock and you just take take it from there You were you very rightly mentioned we we say that we are building what Ocado has built in UK Amazon Fresh in US uh you know the larger warehouse Happy Fresh in US as well the larger warehouse uh tackling a larger use case like the monthly stock up or the weekly top up use case how easy is it as a startup yourself now to recruit talent are people willing to come and work for a startup in pakistan i i think the biggest challenge in pakistan is is human resource for any digital startup uh and there are few reasons because uh one th- one as you correctly mentioned that people are not comfortable working for a digital startup they still want to work for mnc's or the you know the top any fortune 500 company that operates in pakistan like unilever colgate palmolive etc 
uh, and the second second reason for finding the right hr is that no one has done it before like we are doing an e-grocery operation so no one has because we are the first ones who are cracking up the supply chain so there is no one who has run a warehouse delivering 2000 orders per day there is no one who has built up a logistics of riders who are delivering hundreds and thousands of orders per month so every part of the supply chain you are the first one who is building up in pakistan so you you can get a lot of knowledge or you get a lot of consultants or you know some experts of pakistan you can work with but you finding the on on ground team is really tough so in terms of few departments like engineers product designers you can find good resources but uh, in other part of supply chain it's it's tough and even in the engineering department or the computer science or you know the product design side uh, there are a lot the, the the talent pool is limited but there are a lot of startups who are chasing the same talent pool so uh, even in those the finding the right resources becoming tougher and tougher to solve this challenge we we keep on you know adding up a lot of fresh resources in the company from the leading universities and making sure that they'll solve this challenge for us in the next 12 to 24 months let's talk about investment you raised investment uh, not too long ago we invested as wonda how easy or difficult is it to to get investment in pakistan are people there willing to put money into startups so once we, when we started off in 2016 it was extremely tough because there were very limited angel investors like you can count them on fingertips there were just hardly four or five guys operating in pakistan there was no vc fund operating in pakistan uh, all the leading vc funds that we hear from pakistan came in 2018 or 19 so that point of time raising fund was very very tough but in the picture has completely changed in the last 12 to 24 months uh, raising fund in pakistan is becoming easier pakistan is such a huge market 220 million people internet penetration is almost 100 million people the smartphone penetration the growth of 3g 4g uh, a lot of investors are looking into this market pakistan is a market as big as a complete mina region Uh, so i think the raising fund is becoming easier and especially much easier in the last 6 to 12 months so i think the angel round was a tougher the seed was less tough and the series a was a bit easier as one one core reason was that grocer app had really good growth number so i think if you if you you have a solid team you have a good idea and you have a you know a solid traction to show then raising fund is not a problem anymore you you the international investors are looking at pakistani startups and they are willing to invest in this market how many middle east based investors do you have and how do you see that relationship growing do you think the middle east interest is go, going to be very much from investors coming in or do you think um the pakistani market is going to be attractive to middle east based startups to expand to as well all, all the vcs of grocer app like 80% of the vcs of grocer app is from middle east <laughs> the seed round was completely been led by the middle east investors like jabar internet uh, the founder ex founders of sook.com uh, or amazon mina uh, then jabar uh, nadir group in jordan nama ventures saudi so how 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 did you manage to get them did they reach out to you did you reach out to them this is an interesting story i used to you know i used to search all the vc fund who have invested in the similar startups in in the region so jabar internet used to invested in sook.com jabar invested in insta shop one of the two leading exits of the region so i kept on sending them my quarterly reports uh, and keep keep on asking them my, uh, for investment for a good one and a half year they kept denying it <laughs> so in in 20 20 they finally said yes uh, and once we were raising our seed round they connected me to the other funds in the region and once jabar was investing then you know it becomes easier because of other funds you know you know someone who works for the other vc fund you have co-invested in the companies 
so you know the trust factor is there so then uh, the seed round become once the jabbar uh, invested and they led the round it become much easier uh, and in the series a we had investors from new york as well from china uh, but almost 60% of the round was been done by the middle east investors and i think the middle east uh, because of pakistan is next door neighbor to middle east investors have much more idea of the market you know a lot of pakistanis are working for the middle east ventures in in different like the the founders of soup.com one of the founder was pakistani asif kishodia so you know these sort of things help middle east to investors to invest in pakistan or the trust factor is much higher rather than someone sitting in new york or but i think the 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 venture capital has globalized now and you you can find like that all the recent uh, investment round in pakistan has been led by even f- investors from singapore new york so but in grocer app case the majority of the investment came from the middle east ventures is that what the typical cap table looks like now where you have a, a very varied quite global cap table for startups so yeah so i think when if you see the the leading startups in pakistan they'll have investors from like the bikea has prosos airlift express has investors like uh, first round capital then uh, bazaar has led round from Tajir has led round from Kleiner Perkins so a lot of leading investment funds are investing in Pakistan or in Pakistani startups so global investment capital is flowing to Pakistan now in the last 6 to 12 months where are the funding gaps do you think so i think the startups uh, the funding gaps would be in, in the early age of the startups like the angel rounds or the seed rounds that's that is tougher for for uh, Pakistani founders to you know get connected to the international investors so especially founders who have not worked for any large large size startup who doesn't understand it how to raise fund or how to get connected to vc i think there's a lot of gap up there and uh, the local angels have to fill up those gaps and make it more easier for founders to you know reach out to those investors and raise the angel rounds or the earlier rounds of the investors and then i think the it will be interesting to see that how like we a lot of startup have raised a large size series b round but let's see how the series c or series d or even the even later rounds happen so like currently the last round any startup has raised in pakistan is series b only so we have yet to see the series c or series d and see that how it happens in the next few years to come are there startups there that are mature enough for that kind of investment all the startups who have raised like very similar at all the startup in in 2020 including grocer app who have raised seed round went on to raise series a round in 2021 most probably will raise a series b round moving forward and then these startups as they mature as they have more solid traction and growth should be able to raise a very large series c and a series d round so what's next for grocer app so what we are doing is we are launching the fifth market which is karachi which is one of the largest cities of pakistan uh, we have invested a lot in in the farm to consumer direct supply chain we have set up two collection centers already in pakistan they are very large size collection center we are now procuring directly from farmers packing it sorting it out and delivering to consumers so that is the second uh, challenge that we want to scale up in the in the years to come then there are few uh, more bigger objectives that we have which i do not want to share on this podcast <laughs> or cannot share on this podcast but will 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 share with uh, you in maybe in, year, in months to come 
but these are the two bigger ones uh, that i can i can share right now are we talking expansion outside of pakistan uh, currently no for the next 6 to 12 or 24 months we are very much focused on pakistan we believe that it's a it's a large enough market that you can build a billion dollar company just out of pakistan the leading modern trade store in pakistan has a revenue of 300 to 400 million dollars and uh, even those guys are just the modern trade is just starting up in pakistan so we believe that pakistan itself is a big enough market that we would want to we do not want to dilute our attention and keep on focusing keep on you know penetrating and uh, working on the backward integration to build up a a billion dollar company or a very large scale sustainable business out of pakistan so how long do you think it will be before pakistan sees its first unicorn i think we should be looking at the first unicorn by 2025 okay it seems very realistic yes i think the next because as i mentioned that pakistan is 4 or 5 years behind india or where indonesia was and if you see indonesia has eight unicorns india has i think produced 30 unicorns just in 2021 so uh, i think in 4 to 5 years once we catch up to the same internet penetration or the same uh, mobile phone smartphone penetration in in the in pakistan there should be more and more unicorns coming out of pakistan Thanks to both Saif and Ahmed for their time and thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wabda.com or through your podcast provider.